You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Our eyes, they long for your salvation and for the fulfillment, God, of all your promises to us that have come with Christ. Lord, deal with us, your servants, according to your steadfast love and teach us your truth and your love. Teach us your law. Teach us your grace. Teach us about our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Tonight's a torch night. Let me uh, excuse the fourth through sixth graders who'd like to go and have a peer-to-peer discussion about Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17, with some trusted adults. (laughs) I like starting sermons with songs. Joanna does not think this is a great idea. And Ivan, don't worry, he thinks it's a horrible idea. But we're going to play a game, and I think Melissa Salazar is going to win it. We'll see about that. This is a judge-free zone when it comes to voices. That's what church is, you know, right? We'll test it out here. I spit the tune. You spit out the name of the movie that it reminds you of. It's easy, right? And it's all Christmas theme. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Huh? Anybody? What? No, the answer isn't Home Alone on all these. So you... <laughs> It's on one of them, but not that one. That was actually written for Meet Me in St. Louis, 1942. What were you guys doing in 1942? Another one from 1942. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. No, this one's called Holiday Inn with Bing Crosby. Where were you? You guys not paying attention to movies back then? Or what? All right, Christmas time. Oh, we're going in chronological order. Christmas time is here. Happy. All right, Charlie Brown. Nathan won. That's it. Uh, rocking around the Christmas tree. Home Alone. That's my Home Alone one. Dancing with Michael Jordan's cutout. It's amazing. How about this one? I haven't seen this movie. I don't know why. After all, there's only one more sleep till Christmas. Yeah, that's it. How'd you know? That was pretty good. Huh? Okay, last one. Melakalikilaka uh, is the thing. What? Christmas vacation. And now in your head, you've got Cousin Eddie with his shirt tucked into his Speedos. Yeah, sorry about that. Merry Christmas, everybody. Can you believe across the decades how much money and effort and talent and musical creativity Hollywood 
has, has poured into trying to pull out of us our longings for fulfillment and joy at Christmas time, and they, they just keep missing the mark. Not to mention all of, the, all of the money and talent and creativity that Hallmark doesn't put into the very same goal, right? <laughs> Seth isn't here, but I, I'd, be, I'd be lying if I said that I've never been addicted to a Hallmark special. Constable Jack Thornton, can I get an amen on how dreamy that guy is from anybody? Nope. Joanna, her hand's up. Good, thank you. <laughs> if only Constable Jack Thornton would notice me. If only my daughter would forgive me or come to me and ask for forgiveness from me. If only we can get our family or my work situation, my health, my living situation out of a mess that it's in right now. Then, then I would have joy this Christmas. Real joy, deep-rooted happiness that endures, I, I bet. If only this elusively, undefinable, even ephemeral spirit of Christmas would make her fall in love with me, would make him be a better dad, would make that gal not so selfish, would fix our family, or make those who's down in Whoville Endure their loss with a bit more joy. Then, then we will finally find the secret joy that Christmas has to offer. Now, whether or not it is the honorable desire to reconcile a relationship with with loved ones this Christmas, or the hell-bound, hollow, and heralding of, of forbidden sin that calls out to us with empty promises, threatening to undo what Christmas has brought to you, to your heart. We all need something deep, lasting, and transcendent, and eternal. We need it to hold on to every single day. We need it to be satisfying. We need to be able to rest in it. We need to be able to hope in it. We need to be able to find joy in it that really does last. Last week, we saw in the first part of Romans 8 that peace has been secured for us and is now offered to us By God's gracious and loving good news, the gospel, God sending his son, his miraculous birth for us, his perfectly obedient life for us, his sacrificial, atoning, forgiving, reconciling death, and his victorious resurrection all for us. And if this message that you heard last week, and that you hear as we move through our liturgy every week, if it's True, and it, and, it is, and it is accepted and believed in, understood, then it undoes the hostility between us and our maker. It removes all the rightly deserved condemnation, right? Our, our assurance of pardon tonight. There is therefore now no condemnation. That was the main message last week. And this week, we're going to see what flows out of that peace, out of that gospel We're going to see the joy that we can have in light of that peace that we already have in the gospel. And we're talking about more joy than any earthly toy, any treasure, any meal, any mate could ever possibly bring. We ought to say as Christians with C.S. Lewis that if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised to us in the gospel... It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong for satisfaction, but too weak 
We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who, who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, and Hollywood and Hallmark, they know it because we buy it. We ought to look at our culture. We ought to look at the stories they tell and all the pursuits of joy and satisfaction and say, it will never be enough, my friend. You're aiming too low. Let's aim higher. Let's aim for eternity. Let's aim for infinite love that never runs out, never ebbs and flows. Let's aim for what is transcendent, what is untouchable. That's what Christmas brings. And in our text tonight, we're going to see joy in two places. First, the joy of killing. That's right. Merry Christmas. The joy of killing. And number two, the joy of adoption. First, the joy of killing, verse 12 through 13. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Maybe you've heard it at a company meeting sometime. The project is irreconcilably behind schedule or somebody blew it on one of the expectations for the project. And here comes the boss down the, uh, down, down the hallway and everybody's looking at each other like somebody blurts out, heads are going to roll, right? Heads are going to roll. Someone's going to give it an account. Someone will pay the consequences Depending on the culture of the office, somebody may even get fired over this. Someone owes an explanation. Someone's going to taste his wrath. In October of 1789, a French physician named Joseph Guillotine decided that capital punishment, it ought not to be a lingering affair. So he and a German engineer decided they'd make it a bit more efficient. Well, they did that by, well, if you know what his name is, then I'll just trust you to have it in your head. We won't go into deep detail here, even though maybe the listeners are out in the other room. I told him not to use that illustration in there. Verse 12 says, we're debtors. I want you to keep this idea of the guillotine in your head. We're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Then verse 13, we live according to our flesh, our sinful desires, then we will die. Paul here, he's giving implications of the peace that has already been secured for us in Christ that we saw last week. Because there's no more condemnation, he's saying, get your head off the guillotine. Stop living as if you are still condemned. Friend, the executioner has walked away. There's no one to trigger the mechanism anymore. He's left the latch that once secured your neck, my neck, our heads to this death machine. He's left it unlocked. The crowd has already dispersed. Our record of wrongs have been, have been undone and cleared in Christ. No one's left to accuse us of any wrong. We ought to get up. We ought to live. We ought to not choose to live like we still deserve death. And not only is our debt of death gone, but the power of sin to rule over us, it is gone in Christ as well. The chains, the chains that bound our nature to live according to these deadly desires of sin and rebellion against God, 
They were broken along with Jesus' broken body. And we ought to shed them quickly and often anytime they try and wrap themselves around us because of his shed blood. Before we become Christians, we're rebels. We're in, we're in spiritual survival mode. We're willing to break any royal rule. We're, we're willing to ruin any relationship or manipulate any, any motive in order to get our way because we think that we are the most qualified being in all the universe to, to determine what makes us joyful and fulfilled. Know how wrong we were. Those who live this way, making, making our own rules, picking and choosing from God's word, what we will believe, what we will, what we will repent in light of, what we won't repent in light of, what we will obey, we're sending us a clear message that God can be God until he disagrees with me, at which time I become God, until he agrees with me again, and then he'll let him be God again, which means deep down we believe that we are God the whole time self-idolatry but our old debt is gone and we have a new debt now a debt to salvation a debt to the holy spirit a debt born of love toward our maker and with reborn hearts we christians we we, we ought to feel a compulsion of love to honor god who loved us first to love who, who loved us freely and who loved us completely. That's our peace. It was bought with love. It was brought to us. And now it fills us with joy. And it fills us with motivation to fight. We must though. We must as Christians. We must subject ourselves intentionally and frequently and repeatedly to this love that we find in the gospel. And when we do this on a regular basis... On our own in God's word and, and as we read gospel rich and saturated and inspired books, as we sit through and participate in gospel focused worship, as we live in gospel centered community, as we go out on gospel driven mission, then this tidal wave of gratitude will continually well up and drown out any hints of that former debt that we had to death and sin. And it'll drown out any words of those fleshly desires that are opposed to God that whisper in our ears far too often, you need me to have joy. When we do get stuck in the indebtedness to our sin, the lies that tell us God isn't fair or people aren't fair to me or, or, or they owe me more, it's when we forget our position and our right posture toward God. But when we renew our minds with gospel regularity, we begin to love God more. And when we begin to love God more, we begin to love what God loves more. And we begin to hate what God hates more. And when we hate what God hates more, namely the desires of our flesh, then and only then will we grow in our commitment and our radical willingness to put to death the desires of our flesh. You cannot, we cannot put to death anything that we don't already hate. And friends, the reason we don't put to death the desires of our flesh is because we don't hate them. We love them. And so they linger. But when we re renew our minds, we are transformed by the gospel. Do the desires of your flesh haunt you and torment you, Christian? The anxiety, the lust, the fear, the deceit, 
Are they alive and well? Are they thriving in the dark corners of your life? You're commanded to put them to death. But, but how? You can't just walk out of here and be like, to death with you, and then magically they're dead. That's not how it works. Thankfully, we've already seen some very sweet and very radical, miraculous examples of this here at Christ Church. Life-transforming joy when, when desires of the flesh die. Even in our last members' meeting, seeing a brother restored to his family, to sanity, to the Lord, to wisdom, to grace, to stewardship. What a beautiful picture for those of you who are here. And we're begging the Lord for more of that here among us. The spouse that no longer lives in constant fear about the next secret indulgence in pornography or, or, or the next outburst in anger or, or the next prideful indifference or the next bout of lazy leadership or the next season of wrath of, unex, uh, of unmet expectations. Friends, temptations, they're always going to be there, but we can and we must together in community and because of the gospel put these things to death. It's so easy, right? It's so easy and comfy, even natural feeling at times, to put our head back on the guillotine, acting like we owe our flesh, forgetting that we are completely free, believing we are still of the world, believing and acting as if we are against our maker, against his goodness, believing that we'll be satisfied by that which is by nature meant to destroy us, to ruin us, to ruin our families, to ruin our witness, and to eventually make our head roll. Let's pull our heads out, friends. Let's pull our heads out of the guillotine. Let's stand up. Let's look around in joy. We are no longer enemies of our God. But the flesh is still here, is it not? It's still against God. It, it, it's still strong, drawing me away daily, completely if it could. How do I put it to death? Well, two quick things. We need to kill sin at a practical level. Knowing that even as we kill sin at a practical level, we've got to go deeper than that at a motivational level, which I'll get to in a minute. But kill it at a radical level. Get at a practical level. Get radical and practical. Be thorough. Do not hold back anything. Not a phone, not a job, not a friendship. Anything gets in the way of us cutting off the possibility of indulging more in sin. Cut it off. We think we need the internet? No, we do not need the internet. We think we need a smartphone? Nope, we don't need that. We think we need that particular relationship in order to vent and, and confide in? No, you don't. You think you need that, that one more credit card? No, you don't. That one more purchase? You don't need that. We need to live. And Paul says if we kill sin, we will live. And if we don't, it will kill us. So we kill sin at a practical level. We kill sin at a motivational level. We must hate something to kill it. As I said earlier, if we still love it, we won't kill it. We'll stop it for a while until we miss it enough. Then we'll run to it, thinking it will rescue us from our heartache. We must every day be cultivating hatred for our flesh, hatred for our sin. John Owen said, be killing sin every day or it will be killing you. The more we love and know God, the more we will love and 
the things he loves. Don't believe that quiet lie that says, hey, you found so much pleasure in this sin for so long, you owe yourself just one more time. We owe nothing to our flesh and its desires except enmity and war. That's what we owe it, and we ought to pay up every single day by God's grace and with his power. So Ephesians, uh, Paul says here that, that we kill the flesh by living by the Spirit. Ephesians 6 says the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. So we lean in, we lean into his word to find our motivation. And, and we realize, too, that the Spirit is a person. It's, it's not a tool, but this person, the Spirit, has a tool. And this tool is the living, active, bone-splitting motivation unraveling, sin-killing word of God. So we read it, we memorize it, we meditate upon it, we, we submit to it, we believe it, we pray it, we obey it, we sing it together, we confess in light of it, we bank on it until the desires of our flesh begin to give way. So when it comes to justification, it's very important here, the peace that we acquired earlier in this chapter and the sanctifi- sanctification we're being called to now They are somewhat different by nature. Justification is when a dead sinner is made alive by God's power and action alone. And yet sanctification under God's power alone is actually acted upon by the believer. And Kevin DeYoung, a pastor, has a really good analogy for us here. 2 Peter 1 says this, God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness so that Through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. So it's his power, it's his nature. We're partakers in it. So that through them, we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. For this very reason, what does he call us to do? Roll over and let God do all the work? No. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection. Friends, to grow as a Christian is not just to let go and let God. It's to take it by the throat and choke it down and let God. Right? Here's Kevin DeYoung's um, very helpful phrase. I would encourage you to memorize it. I have, and it's, it's helped me as I've gone back and fought different areas of sin in my life. Kevin DeYoung says that, that the way to kill sin by supplementing our faith with all these things And making every effort is to remember that holiness is achieved by grace-driven, that's very important, spirit-empowered, that's very important, faith-fueled, very important, effort. So I want you to have a picture of a vehicle in your mind. You've got grace-driven, you've got Jesus Christ sitting in the driver's seat with his foot on the gas pedal saying, don't worry kid, I'm going to drive this thing. I'll motivate it all. The love I have for you on the cross and in the resurrection, that, oh yeah, the one that forgave you of all your sin, yep, that's what's driving this whole thing, me. Grace-driven. Spirit-empowered. There's an engine in that car. That's where all the power comes from to move that car forward. That's his Holy Spirit. So when Jesus revs that engine, the Holy Spirit shows off its power and says, we're moving down the road. We're growing in holiness. You will be sanctified. Faith-fueled. The tank's got to be, got to have some fuel in it. 
We've got to be believing in that gospel, renewing our mind in that gospel, trusting the Spirit and His power. That's our faith. And the Holy Spirit uses that fuel to move this thing forward as Jesus pushes on the gas. And then the last word, effort. You could have the gospel in the driver's seat. You could have the Spirit under the hood. You could have a tank full of faith. And if the tire doesn't grab the asphalt and move it backward so that the car moves forward, we're not going anywhere, friends. We must work at this. Too many Christians don't get anywhere because they've gone to the wrong place for motivation. And plenty of Christians don't go anywhere in sanctification and holiness because we're not trying very hard. You could be the most gospel-centered believer there is, and you're just not trying hard. The Bible calls us many times to become what we already are. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul's talking to the church. He says, you're already a lump of dough, essentially, and, and you don't have any impurities in you. Now get those impurities out. So Paul tells the church in Corinth. And in Hebrews, the author says, you, you, um, God is working in you to perfect that which is already perfected. So we're called as Christians to realize that we are already something and that we are yet becoming something. And we're commanded to become that. So who are we? So we get to our second point. The joy of adoption. Did you know, this is verse 14 through 17 if you're following along. Did you know that not all people in the world are children of God? I've heard this many times when you're trying to share the gospel with somebody. They say, oh, all people are God's children. No. The Bible does not agree with that. A sinner becomes a child of God by grace, through faith in Christ, as revealed in the Scriptures, to the glory of God. That's how someone gets in this family, and it's an insult to God's sacrificial love and, and initiative in the gospel to say that every person is a child of God. We become children of God through adoption. I want you to go back to the idea of the guillotine. Because if we come to believe this good news, the judge who minutes later had his hammer ready to smack the gavel which would trigger the executioner to drop the blade and take every one of us out in well-deserved condemnation has dispersed the crowd himself. Nothing to see here, folks. He's let the executioner have the afternoon off. No one deserves death here. And he comes down. He himself unlatches the lock over our necks. He himself lifts us up and, and pulls us back from the stench and proximity of death. And he doesn't just cut us loose at that point and say, off to the wilderness with you. To fend for yourself, protect yourself, provide for yourself. No. He says, your last name is my last name now. My last name is your last name. I'm changing your birth certificate you're coming into my family. Everything I've given you up until now, though you've squandered it, has been mercy. But everything from now on has been purchased by my son. It cost me everything. This is the joy of adoption. When the judge comes close and embraces us with both arms, Sinclair Ferguson says this, the notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation, and it is the very goal of redemption. Christmas brings us Christ. 
And Christ brings us to God through adoption. And being with God now and forever, it brings joy, both now and forever. And we get much of our understanding of, of the joys of adoption by observing adoption on an earthly level. So I asked several families, some here at Christ Church and some not, well, how does adoption bring joy? And here are some of their answers. First, the moms, a.k.a. the wordy ones. <laughs> adoption has brought some of my greatest earthly joy in this life. I couldn't imagine my family without my beautiful boys. I love them with every fiber of my being. People tell me that they're scared when they think about adoption, that they wouldn't be able to love an adopted child as much as a biological, but, but that's ludicrous because the person I love most in this world doesn't share my, the, the same blood and DNA as me. In the same way I choose to die to myself and love my husband, I choose to love my children equally and without abandon, the way Christ loved and pursued me. Another mom, our adoption was my hardest pregnancy. The waiting, the bitterness and pain of the sad story and circumstances surrounding the need, the unknown, the waiting, even the difficulties after adoption, and yet the darkness surrounding it has given way and completion to an inversely proportional joy, just like the gospel. We realize the darkness of our sin and our plight without God, and then he saves us by his grace, deep, lasting, secure joy. How about a couple of uh, adopting dads? Let's see what they said. A little less wordy, but still good. Adoption gave me a small peek into how loving and kind my father has been toward me in doing all the work necessary to secure my sonship in him. It even broke me of greed and selfishness that I did not know were so deeply rooted in my heart. Another dad. Adoption drew the picture I need to understand the real and deep and extremely personal relationship I should have with the Lord. As one who can tend to think of God as this distant, you know, with arms crossed, adoption continues to show me love and pursuit and care and cuddles. And I need that picture of my God. One adopted boy that I asked, who lived with uh, and, and was loved by his birth mother for years before being adopted, he said, uh, adoption brought joy to me because it brought me something I'd never felt before, the love of a man, the love of a dad. Christian, look inside your heart. Do you feel the Spirit of God bringing testimony alongside your spirit? You have a love that before Jesus got involved, you had never tasted before. I don't care how good your dad was here or is here. You'd never tasted it quite like this. So we see a lot of vertical implications of adoption, even in this adoption of children here on earth. What, what about horizontal implications? Listen to these others. These are from adopting uh, children, so the siblings of those who are adopted. Adoption made me a big brother. And it made me a big sister. It gave us a younger sibling to play with, and to teach, and to love, and to lead. Another child says, it also brings someone into your family that you, could, you couldn't have had any other way. It's, it's, it's a new way to experience diversity. I think it's fun to have that because then you have different personalities, and that's really cool. One mom puts it this way on the horizontal effects of adoption. Adoption brings joy through the impossible. Total strangers, look around as I read this one, total strangers 
who under any other arrangement would never have crossed paths, never cared about one another, never even known one another, they now have become family with all the challenges, with all the joys, defying DNA, defying what we feel is normal, just like the gospel does in forming the church. Friends, literally look around you right now. Look in the eyes of your adopted brothers and sisters and feel the joy that the gospel brings in community by making a new family. In Paul's day, adoption carried many of these same rich um, um, characteristics, and that's why he used it. Let me just tick off from things we see in verse 16 and 17. Very quickly, six things, six benefits and joys of adoption. First, to be adopted by God is to be totally and utterly secure in God. There is no more room, friends, for fear or uncertainty in our relationship with God. Of course, we still revere Him. We, we respect Him. It's all part of it. But we are no longer slaves to sin. The spirit of slavery says, if I slip up, my master will beat me. The spirit of a son says, if I slip up, my dad will forgive me and he will teach me. The spirit of a slave says, I'll obey out of compulsion. The spirit of a son says, I obey because I love my dad. The spirit of slavery makes me as a Christian, when I'm tempted by this, to focus on behavior and rules only. The spirit of sonship helps me to focus on relationship and attitudes and motivations behind the actions. So security. We've been moved from insecurity of slavery to the security of sonship. Number two, we've, to be adopted by God means to experience unprecedented closeness with God. We don't just refer to him as this distant king or mighty God, those he is, but he's our daddy. That's what Abba means in Aramaic. We cry out to him. Our spirit cries out, daddy. Now, I don't know about you. I have a friend, several of them, who, who call their dad's daddy still, and they're my age, which I'm totally cool with. My dad calls his dad daddy, and he's long been with the Lord. Um, my grandpa's been long been with the Lord. But it's a little weird when your friend calls their dad daddy to you, right? I'm like, Carrie, he's not my daddy. Like, you don't have to call him daddy. I appreciate her familiarity and her comfort in calling him daddy, but I'm like a little weirded out by it. But what about Christians? Christians never call God daddy. I mean, unless The only time I've ever heard it is maybe a missionary writing a letter home and they're trying to be all coded and they're like, I was talking to daddy the other day about you. Praying, praying for you, which is cool. I'm great. I've got cool. But shouldn't we be so familiar and close with God that we actually refer to him? Anytime I pray up here, and I think I'm trying to follow the Lord's prayer when he says, our father who's in heaven, I, I generally start with father, but I don't call my dad father ever. And so that says something about my feeling and, and default closeness or lack thereof with God. We ought to feel because of our adoption enough closeness to call him at least what we call our father or our dad here. So if I start saying dear dad on our, in our liturgy and in our pastoral time of prayer, don't hold it against me. And if we start talking about God in the dad sense more and more in community or more and more in our own time with him, hopefully that means that the spirit of adoption is saturating us all the more. It's the kind of closeness, it's the kind of familiarity we ought to have with God. 
Number three, to be adopted by God is to have complete assurance from God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Imagine a courtroom where the, 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 the evidence is sort of going one way or the other, and nobody really knows, and the Spirit walks in and says, here is the defining evidence that this person is not guilty and it is a son of the Most High. Case closed, let's all go home. That's what the Spirit does for us when we read His Word and when we're in His body and when we're drawing close to Him. His Spirit testifies along with our spirit that we are His Number four, to be adopted by God is to be an heir of God. In biblical times, the eldest son usually got the lion's share of, of the inheritance. And to be frank, it seems a bit to me to be, to be uh, a bit selfish and prideful in the sense that they want to keep the family name um, intact and the family wealth intact. So just give it to one of them or you spread it all out and great, we'll lose it all in time. But here, Paul is turning that idea on its head because he's essentially saying, All Christians are heirs now. All Christians will feel so satisfied and so well taken care of by what they have in Christ that it will feel like they got it all. Do you feel like you got it all? Do you feel like you have all of his love, all of his riches in and of yourself? That's what it means to be an heir of God in Christ. A couple more. To be adopted by God is to to receive loving discipline from God. Verse 17 says that to be a child of God means to share in Christ's sufferings. Hebrews tells us that discipline is is painful for the moment, but that God disciplines us for our good. And Tim Keller says this, a good father will lovingly discipline. He will not use his authority to selfishly indulge his own need to feel powerful or in control over you. Does it remind anyone of their father, their earthly father? But neither will he be so needy for his child's love and approval that he never does what is hard or difficult. Remind anyone else? Their dad? Keller goes on. It is a painful privilege to be put through discipline by the most loving and wise father in the universe. We ought to welcome that painful privilege, shouldn't we? Because hopefully this painful privilege is germinating seeds of joy in our hearts to know that our Heavenly Father loves us enough to correct us. Finally, number six, to be adopted by God is to have the family resemblance of Christ as we suffer. As Christians adopted children of God, we have this other painful privilege besides the discipline from God himself. Jesus came to to shine The light of truth on sinfulness, and so must we. Jesus came to warn of the judgment to come, and so must we. Jesus came to offer rebels a throne of grace, forgiveness, and salvation, and so must we. And Jesus, for doing all these things, he suffered rejection, marginalization, persecution, and friends, so must we. Do you hear the implication here? Verse 17. If we aren't suffering for following Christ in some way, either under discipline or persecution, we may not be following Christ at all. We may not be adopted. Our adoption ought to lead to those things. 
Are we too quiet about Jesus because we're afraid to lose a friend or to disrupt family unity and stability that's false anyway? God lost his family stability to bring us into his family forever. Let us embrace this suffering humbly just as Jesus did and to do it like he did because of the joy set before him. We'll talk more about suffering next week. So let me leave you with this conclusion. When Christ was born in Bethlehem, the angels declared to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy. And when the sky was filled with countless angels, they said, glory to God in the highest. Good news of great joy. Peace on earth. Glory to God. We have the peace because of the gospel. We can have the joy now and forever as we press into that gospel and God will always get the glory because people around us will begin to recognize more and more who we value the most. Not ourselves, not even them, but God himself. Let us rest in Jesus. Let us trust in Jesus, live in the spirit and find this deep, abiding, satisfying joy as we kill sin together, finding joy even in the killing even as we do in our own adoption. Let us pray for that now. Dad, help us, we pray, to believe that we've been adopted. Help us, Dad, to feel the privileges of adoption, even if they're painful. Help us, Dad, to love what you love. Help us, Dad, we pray, to hate what you hate, to feel closer to you, to feel secure in you, to kill our sin that dishonors you, to suffer well as we follow your son, Jesus. Dad, thank you for sending your son so that we can call you dad. So that now we are forgiven of our sin. So that now we have the power in you to put that sin to death. So that you might be glorified and so that we might be satisfied by deep and abiding joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.